Welcome to Entrepreneur Mindset Reset, the podcast for entrepreneurs who want to learn from fellow business owners how to decrease the chaos and increase their sense of fulfillment while becoming more profitable. I'm your host, Tracy Trepesky. I'm an executive coach and consultant and leadership development expert. I'm also mom to two amazing teenagers and a menagerie of adopted furry family members. In each episode, we explore challenges, opportunities, and actionable tips to help you take control of your time and energy and improve your bottom line while staying true to your vision. You'll hear from me and my guests how we've tackled some of the pitfalls and unexpected surprises that entrepreneurship delivers. We're the real deal, and we're here to inspire and encourage you. Let's dive in. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in today for a new episode of Entrepreneur Mindset Reset, the podcast where entrepreneurs just like you and me learn how to take back their time and master their mindset to overcome obstacles to their success. Well, at time of recording, there's a lot of chaos and it feels like the world is turned upside down. In the U.S., we've had major human rights stripped from us and our democracy threatened. Again, there's a war in Ukraine. We're still navigating the COVID pandemic, and on any given day, the news cycle is teeming with more chaos and bad news. That is enough to overwhelm even the most positive of minds. And yet today, I'm so honored to have had such a powerful conversation fueled by hope, research, and observation of human behavior and historical patterns. Our guest today is thoughtful, insightful, and research-backed Dr. Ciela Hartanov of Hume Collective. Our conversation went deep from the first question, which was, where are you in the world? She gave one of the best responses I've ever gotten to that question, which if you listen regularly, you will know that I ask every guest. She said it's a two-part answer. First, physical place, and second, emotional place. Dr. Ciela Hartanov was part of the founding team of the Google School for Leaders and head of Next Practice Innovation and Strategy at Google, where she developed projects designed to shape the future of leadership and work. She currently runs Hume Collective, a boutique strategy innovation firm that helps companies, executives, and teams make sense of the forces shaping the future and prepare strategically. Ciela has been a featured speaker at a wide range of conferences from the House of Beautiful Business to the HR Leaders Forum in Australia. She's been quoted in Psychology Today and Forbes and is sought after thought leadership on the future of leadership and adaptable organizations. She brings a multidisciplinary view that leverages business foresight and organization development to break barriers and invent next practices for humane, kind, and responsive workplaces. Ciela shared from the get-go that being an entrepreneur has been a journey in self-discovery, learning, growing, tapping into personal resilience, and letting go. Coming from the tech world, her perspective on human behavior and interpretations of our behavior is unique and very interesting. I personally experienced a couple of mindset shifts during our conversation. <laughs> the first that really stands out to me is how meeting comes from two lenses. The first is individual meaning, and the second is community-level meaning. This is fascinating to me, and I am filled with hope to learn that it doesn't really take large institutional shifts to affect change, but rather smaller groups of around 100 or so to make groundswells. 
And that can be the impetus for real and meaningful change. The second that stood out to me was the fundamental differences between values and mindset. Mindset is about what we believe to be true, and we have individual mindset and organizations can have mindset. The difference is key as two organizations can say they hold similar values, but their mindset is what shows their differences. We talked about Patagonia and Microsoft, for example, so you want to listen carefully there. You know, I normally say we can listen to podcasts while doing other things like walking, driving, or maybe something somewhat mindless like filing or doing dishes or puttering around your house or something. But today, I'm going to recommend that you sit your whole self down with a notebook with your finger ready for the pause button so you can reflect on the deep insights that Cielo shares. I'm still taking it in and reviewing my own notes. Ciela's depth of knowledge and her desire to make a difference shine so bright. She breathed so much life and hope into my day, and I am thrilled to share this episode with you. Watch this space and connect with Ciela on her various platforms so you can keep an eye out for her book that's coming out next year entitled Reclaiming Sensitivity. I know I'll be pre-ordering it as soon as she announces publication. So you know what to do. Grab a beverage or a snack. Take a seat with your pause finger at the ready and settle in to listen to Ciela and her amazing journey. Ciela, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I'm thrilled to have you on. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me, Tracy. Oh, it's my pleasure. I, I'm really excited. And as we were kind of in the green room talking, I started getting really, really, really excited about all the things you're working on. So before we dive in, I'd love to let our listeners know where you are in the world. Yeah. So that's a great question because I think there's two ways to answer that. One is the physical place that we are. And I live in San Francisco, but right now I'm in Calistoga, California, which is a really fun town in Northern California that still has sort of a hippie roots to it. And, mm-hmm. and <laughs> so much so that the power went out last night during a storm and this hotel that I'm staying in doesn't have a generator. <laughs> it's like, that's cool. <laughs> And so I went to dinner. I went out to dinner and a local came in and sat next to me and struck up a conversation. We had a conversation about the heritage of this place, which was really an unexpected gift. Um, And it was because the power went out and he didn't have any power. So he also needed to find a place to go. So that's where I am in terms of my physical place. I think that question can also be about an emotional place. And I've been thinking a lot about the emotional architecture of being an entrepreneur lately. And what I'm noticing about the emotional place about entrepreneurship is it is a a broad range of emotional states. And what I've noticed more and more is that our internal capacity to hold ourselves, to be with ourselves and whatever emotion is arising, whether it be extreme excitement, extreme fear that something's not going to work out. I'm, I'm just noticing the range of my emotional place as I have been on this entrepreneurship journey, which I'm assuming many of your listeners probably can relate to. For sure. And it's interesting too, because I, I feel like emotions also provide us data, data checkpoints. You know, if we notice from what I do for a living, I'm all about the pattern recognition. So if I start to notice a pattern in my feelings and how, how I'm responding to things, then I start looking at, is there a pattern and stuff that's going on around me? 
if I don't like it, is there anything I can do to change it? Or can I change how I respond? So, and I think that that's just key for being an entrepreneur. I mean, we're diving in and going really deep immediately, but I, I think, you know, the entrepreneur's journey is so much more about oneself, even if we're showing up to be of service to our clients in some way. I still think. I couldn't agree more. And take this gumption. <laughs> and I sort of joke, I think, gosh, wish someone would have told me that this is actually identity work before I decided to do this. And yet, um, even if someone had said this is identity work, I wouldn't have really understood that until I was inside it. And I, I completely agree with you that emotions are absolutely central to the human experience and how we're making sense of ourselves inside the world. And it is data. It's, it's one of those things that I think we have said, oh, take the emotion out of it, which has actually no utility. When you put the emotion back in, then there's all this range of understanding that you can gather, not only about yourself and your, how you respond, but also about how other people are responding too. And is it matching or is there actually a different way to respond? Because if someone is having a different emotional response, it shows you there are different ways to step in to a situation. And, and I'm, I'm really on a journey to, and to hopefully help others also reclaim some of the sense-making that comes from the emotional architecture of our lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So how does this tie into what you currently do and, and how did you, how did you come to be in this space of choosing this path of learning about yourself? <laughs> yes. Great. Well, if you, if you read my bio, which is the boring part of the story probably, but I'll give you the headline around that. And then I'll talk a little bit around what's under, underneath that pieces of the journey. So if you look at my background, I've always worked, worked in the tech industry. I have a doctorate in culture and human behavior. And my whole work inside organizations has been to help leaders and organizations be more effective. And that includes how an organization system is structured, but it also includes how the people inside it are able to be whole or not. And what does that contribute to a building of a community or a system? And I've done that inside tech organizations for, for many decades now. And I recently um, have gone out on my own to help organizations, uh, a broad brushstroke across many different industries, grapple with this level of uncertainty that we're experiencing now and creating systems, structures, and doing the, what I call the inner work to be able to be capable inside this terrain of in incredible uncertainty. And my whole mission inside this work is to help us reinvent or reimagine what is this idea of work itself. Um, there's a lot of memes out there about this idea of the future of work. Um, the future of work is flexible, et cetera, et cetera. What I'm more interested in actually is what, what is the paradigm shift that we're inside of now? Moving from an industrial era mindset, sort of moved into the knowledge era mindset, what is next? And how can we co-create it together? And that's where I really bring my systems lens and my human behavior lens, because I think we have to have some sort of homecoming to ourselves to be able to create the work conditions that we want to embody and, and build going forward. Because organizations are built by human beings. So we get to decide at this point in time, 
What types of organizations do we want to build? And I think we know right now that on mass, people want more flexibility, more personalization inside their work lives, more meaning inside their work lives. And then the question becomes, and what else? Like if we can dream, what else? What else do we want it to be? And this is the moment to do that. Hmm. I think it's it's an interesting shift to observe, right? I see it with kids in the education system. I see it with people in the corporate world, having been in the corporate world, leaving the corporate world, all of our reasons for that, and watching the mindset that needs to change, right? So watching people go from sort of forgetting the humanity and then recognizing that humanity is really important and then suddenly, like you said, and what else? You know, okay, so we want meaning, we want flexibility, we want to have more agency and, <laughs> you know, and I, I'm, I'm curious, you know, what that we were talking as we were warming up, like, what does it mean to have meaning? Like, what, it, what exactly yeah. is that? It's like the word pivot from 2020. Like, it's just been used yeah. so much, we don't know what it means anymore. <laughs> so what does it mean to do meaningful work? I think there's two layers to that question. And those people who who work in the individual coaching space would probably take the lens around what is the individual's meaning and helping someone look to this idea of work and decode it inside their own lives and inside their own context of family obligations or whatever it may be. That's one lens on this idea and this notion of meaning. I think we sometimes get stuck there thinking that, that that's the only place that meaning matters. And what I'm really interested in right now and I'm running a research study on is where and when does meaning and how does meaning work at the more community level? And we can look to historical examples around when we have created a joint sense of meaning, which often turns into a joint mindset about what a community and society should look like. And then we start creating systems, institutions, and structures that manifest upon this joint sense of meaning. So if you think about even how the United States was founded, the founding fathers could have looked at their individual sense of meaning around why, why come to a new land and why, what does this mean for me individually? Yes, that matters. But what ended up happening, of course, is that a, a joint sense of meaning was made around philosophies like freedom and you can free speech. I mean, you can argue all these things, right? If they're, if they're really being manifested, but then the notion that we can come together in a community and from scratch decide what we believe together and what it means to be in community with one another. So what I'm interested in right now is what does it mean to be inside a work community now? And how do we build from from that and integrate those individual needs and those individual pieces of meaning into a larger structure around work. Because work is really, it's not really meant to be done alone. It's it's a joint effort. It's how that's how we build things that are bigger than ourselves. And the human condition is that we want to be contributing to something larger than ourselves. So we can only go so far if all we care about is our own personal meaning in the world. So we start to see communities coming together where they're saying, here's what matters to us. And you, we've started seeing this. I and mean, you could look to some examples around, for instance, Starbucks, and there's been some unionization push 
happening there. Like, okay, what, what it means to us is that we have more um, say, for example. And I think you could probably argue that's true across many different industries. We want more say. We want more inclusivity. Um, we want more belonging. And some organizations are even taking bolder steps to, um, because they believe in communities that are contributing more to sustainability and that they have a role to play inside of climate change and some of the other existential crises that we're facing. Mm -hmm. So that whole part around the community of meaning, I think, is where we also need to start looking so that work reflects that. Mm -hmm. It definitely, I like to spend a lot of time observing what's going on and trends, and I'm seeing a lot. I think some of it's generational, but I feel like there's still like the seismic shift that's happening. And Maybe it would have happened without the pandemic, but I think the pandemic just, again, brought opportunity to, to pause and reflect. But it seems like there is a shift globally toward more contribution, a more collaborative and meaningful existence, really. And with, with respect to work, yes, it's about dignity and pride and all of those things too, the individual, but it feels like it's so much more. So this, this research that you're doing, you know, when it's finished and you're ready to share it with the yeah. world, I'm really looking forward to seeing what the data shows. You know, I think you're right. Your instinct is, is, is right. And we're early in here. So I, what I'm interested in also are early trends and early signals. And the data is always like a lagging indicator. So we have some data, mm -hmm. absolutely. But we need to be paying attention, especially in times of uncertainty around where these trends are. And that tells us a lot about what's happening here and what you've identified in terms of it's not just about the economics. And I think we need to make a distinction between work with a big W, which is what is our collective work in the world. It's about meaning. It's about our human existence in, in the planet. Work can be a larger bucket. And I think that's the conversation we're starting to, to have versus economics mm -hmm. and the economic utility of going to work, which has to do with um, financials and salary and all those things absolutely matter. But we, there's a place, there's something that's happened inside the place of the pandemic where we've started asking bigger questions around what work is supposed to be doing. Mm -hmm. And this wouldn't be the first time in history that this question has been asked, right? This is, this is philosophical around what is, what is human work? And, it, you know, in history shows that if you, you, you know, if you used to be rich, you actually wanted more leisure than you wanted work. And work, mm -hmm. the idea of working was seen as something that wasn't necessarily favorable, um, because it, it had this sort of economic tie to it. So if you needed to work, it meant you were in a, a lower class bracket, right? And now we're actually changing the way we understand it is that work is actually a human need. And by work, we mean contribution, not because we need to meet an economic threshold. But I think we have to be clear that both things are at play because, yes, we have to have money to, to live and people are in different financial brackets. What's been interesting to me about this moment in history, though, is that it seems to me that every sort of economic bracket is asking a very similar question. 
which is what is work. So that's a very interesting thing that all of us as collective are asking this really important question. And that might be the first time we've seen that in a very long time, I suspect. That's, I mean, that's really, really fascinating because it always seems like until we start talking and listening to one another that we all want different things. But my theory has always been if we can listen to one another and we can, you know, we're going to have emotions, but if we can check our reactions while we're listening to people and they say things we don't agree with, most of us with a little bit of wiggle around the edges want the same things. So I find that really What do you think those things are? You know, okay. So like in, in political conversations with people where we're across the aisle from one another, I find it fascinating to have the conversation about healthcare, for example. And really what it comes down to is a human right to have access to high quality healthcare, preventative care. We, we ought to, as humans, have a right to be well. And most people agree that how to get there is, you know, a different story. But when we take all the political, you know, fire out of it and just talk about the human need and the human desire, that's one that comes up mm-hmm. a lot. And, and I love having that conversation with people and we can, you know, policies aside, what does the human condition desire and really require? Because I'm of the belief that if we don't have health, we don't have a lot to work with. So that's a big one, I think, that, that comes through. And I think, you know, the right to dignity, I think it still comes down to me for human rights, right? The right to dignity, most people think of having a dignified existence as being able to make a living, but it's more than that, right? It's contributing. It's, like, it's kind of echoing what you were saying. And so to hear about, about feeling a wholeness, mm-hmm. you know, as, as human beings, we, we do want a, a wholeness inside our inside our lives and that is an it's interesting thinking about what you're describing because in terms of human behavior and the study of human behavior most human behavior researchers are not surprised (laughs) by how people show up and behave because there are these underlying conditions inside the human experience around things that we need and desire Hmm. we need and desire to belong we need and desire to be well. You know, we need and desire to have dignity and um, self-efficacy to be able to perform in, in the world. So some of these things that you're describing are absolutely just essential to the human condition. And what if we took these things and we went back and we said, what are, what's essential to the human condition? And are those things that need to have meaning inside the community that we're building, whether that be work or otherwise? And I'm using community specifically as, as the unit, because I think we've started to miss that there's this middle layer of community as a unit of connectivity and connective tissue to our human lives. What I have seen historically sort of in the organization is that it's either the individual and you have agency and you decide or it's the big organization and they decide but neither of these are actually the unit of connection the unit of connection is the community that you you sit inside Mm -hmm. so i am really in favor of us looking at sort of these nodes of community inside an organization but also inside of society and where we live 
as the as the sort of the unit of, of meaning making, and that can ladder up to a wider society, to a wider organization. But this is where we actually have some level of control, because the communities that we influence um, are smaller in nature, and so that means that we can actually do something with it. It's really hard to change a really large organization, right? Well, I think that that's something that, you know, there's an opportunity there. It can feel really overwhelming. I think when, when someone has an idea, right, you know, it's my understanding that it takes, I think a tipping point is around three or 4%. So at three or 4%, if people start shifting in their mindset and their consciousness, I guess, on some level, Mm -hmm. that that's where change can be affected. So it's not really... I didn't, I didn't know that statistic, but that's not really that much. It's not that much. And so, and it's not, I mean, maybe it's about being louder, (laughs) but I think that it's more than that. I think, you know, it's interesting to hear you say that it's really that middle node, that that's really where we can affect the change and where we can come together and using the language of community, just, it feels really warm. Um, it does, doesn't it? Yeah. And like full of hope and progress, right. Moving that there's a forward motion, but not like a freight train, you know, that's right. That's, that's right. So it's, and it feels, um, doable Mm -hmm. because it is. So the way groundswells happen, I don't know that statistic that you provided, but what I do know is from historical analysis we see that groundswells happen when communities of like-minded get together and they they really can't be that large because there's this idea called the Dunbar number, if you're familiar, which basically says, you know, we can have about 100, it's in question, 100, 150 that we're really connected to in some form. So those communities are really only 100, 150 perhaps, but they can have a groundswell effect, especially with the augmentation of technology. So I know sometimes we're scared of technology, but technology is just another tool like fire Mm -hmm. or the stove. (laughs) You know, we invented it and it can be an augmentation to us to create change. So social media for all of its ills has contributed to groundswells of communities that are, you know, 100, 150 making change inside, inside their communities their societies, their organizations. And what I saw a lot inside of Google when I worked there was that activism started in small pockets. And then because of technology and the way the news cycle works, it would groundswell. And for good or for bad, you can decide, but it's there for our taking if we want to use it in an effective way. I think that makes it feel less daunting for those of us who want to be part of making change and 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 really want to be involved in community and supporting so to hear that it's a hundred or so that doesn't sound so overwhelming so even institutional change happens in smaller pockets i do think that's how it it happens and this may be may be disputed by other organizational psychologists, but part of it is the research that, I, that I've done and I have an academic background, but part of it is simply being inside organizations and being in charge of this idea of change management, which I think is absolutely ridiculous. No one person can be in charge of change management. <laughs> I don't even yeah. think that should be a job title. <laughs> but still, 
seeing inside organizations that want to execute some sort of change, it doesn't happen, I don't think, in the way that we have, we have believed it happens, which is at the system-wide, large-scale level. It's, it's always happening in some sort of nodes or fractals inside an organization, if it's large. Now, if you're working with a startup that is 250 people, okay. Mm-hmm. But large systems, I think it, it happens in these pockets of like-minded, meaning-making communities. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's... I, I mean, you've breathed life into me, <laughs> especially after at time of recording the last couple of weeks of the news cycle, right? It's like, yeah, oh, it's gosh, I mean, it's challenging. Yeah, really challenging, extremely worrying, and not, you know, necessarily with what the larger percentage of the population mm-hmm. wants. So it's, you know, it's one of those things where I had one or two days of kind of going, oh boy, all is lost. <laughs> and then going, hold on, <laughs> there are things that we can do there are organizations we can support. There are people that we can lock arms with. There are things that we can do that can make change. So, you know, on the huge, huge scale, that's um, that's very encouraging. But also from the perspective of what you do in your company now, mm-hmm. how do you apply this to the people that you work with? Like, who are your clients? Yeah. Not necessarily names, but the kind yeah, of organizations. Sure. Yeah, So I work a lot with the technology industry just because that's my background. But I've had the opportunity more recently to work with some some nonprofits. I did a keynote recently for a pharma company, which was incredible. Working with healers is really interesting because mm. it's um, the meaning is sort of embedded in there. Mm. And sometimes I think tech industries are trying to, tech companies are trying to make up like an important purpose or important meaning, which matters. You, you know, we need to have meaning that's attached, but there's something inside of, of healthcare or more of these other industries where the purpose is very clear. Mm-hmm. And that, that is interesting to work with those type of companies. So anyway, th- those are sort of the, the shape of companies that I work with. And I do a few different things. One is um, I do keynotes and workshop conversations that are not dissimilar to what we're doing here, Tracy, which is how do we widen our perspective about an issue, um, a trend that's happening so that we can, we can get a wider lens. And that wider lens is what gives us the opportunity to make a different move. So we can do that in different ways. Getting the wider lens can be through a conversation that I'm having or a keynote address that I'm giving. It can be through a workshop process, or I actually have an end-to-end innovation model where I have helped organizations rethink an entire strategy. So for instance, I helped a big tech company recently rethink what is, in, what is this idea of employee experience mm. and what is the next practice of employee experience? And this has a lot to do with the question around what is work and what is meaning. So we bring in all of these questions. It starts with questioning. Hmm. What's possible here? Who's on the edge here? What are the small pockets of community that are making change? Like, who are those people? And we start looking and then we start decoding. Okay, then how do we get that into a strategy? And my view is that these strategies are always adaptive. So then the other question that I always bring to the table is, and how do you continue to sense what's happening inside the system or outside the system so that you can be more adaptive with your strategy over time? 
So those are the three buckets of work that I do with clients. And I just finished a book manuscript called Reclaiming Sensitivity. And thank you. Congratulations. It'll be out next year. And this book is all about what, what I think matters a lot right now, which is the ability to sense and respond to our environments will be more and more critical as time goes on. And when I say environments, I mean our internal environment but also how we're in relationship with one another, how businesses respond to the unprecedented terrain. So what I'm arguing for is a reclaiming of this idea of sensitivity in its fullest definition. Yes, emotional acuity, but also the whole idea of how we make sense Mm. and, and how do we augment how we make sense by taking other people's perspectives, also using technology to give us information and insight so that we are moving to a wider set of knowing that is way more perceptive than the traditional way of understanding knowledge and what knowing is. So that's what the book is about. And it's sort of a philosophy, but also has pieces of pragmatism around how you do this for yourself. Is this book for, is it really written for individuals or is it written with organizations in mind? It's written for business leaders. Mm -hmm. And yet I feel as though the idea of leader often gets misunderstood as the C-suite and only the CEO. And when I say leader, I really mean, are you galvanizing something? And if you're galvanizing something, then this is a book for you. Are you inside a community where you're trying to galvanize? Are you trying to galvanize change for yourself? I mean, that's a leadership act right there too. Mm -hmm. So yes, business leaders in terms of where it's going to sit on the shelf, Right. (laughs) But let's just be clear that business leader doesn't mean you need to be a CEO. Yeah. Yeah. Whenever I hear the word leader, you know, my first thought is the conditioning, right? Whoever sits, who's the big boss person. But then I think about leadership because I do a lot of work with my clients around leadership as something that's so much broader. I mean, I think of a homemaker as a leader. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, probably one of the most important leaders, you know, for and for unpaid work. And any of us could be leaders. And I love that you say if you're galvanizing something, then this is this is a book that can really be supportive of that journey as a leader. Yeah. And if you're if you're feeling overwhelmed by the fact that everything feels so uncertain and unprecedented, this is a book that offers a way to build your internal fortitude and resilience and skill set so that you don't feel like the wave is crashing upon you. It's more like you're surfing it. Mm-hmm. And that is the way that we all need to be now because this emergent change is going to just continue happening. Every statistic shows that the acceleration of change will just continue and emergent is- issues like COVID, like climate crisis, all of this, like war, all of this is actually going to just continue to accelerate. So if we're looking for some sort of pause to like get ourselves back together, that pause is not coming. So that's why we have to create it inside our ourselves. And I have a whole chapter that's about the idea of the sensing self. Mm-hmm. So we, we talked about emotions earlier, and I do talk about the, in the sensing self, the value of emotions as a, as a knowledge mechanism for about ourselves. But how are we earlier on inside our own condition at work or wherever, sussing out points where we might be coming overwhelmed where, so that we don't end up down the line where we're completely burnt out 
and we have nothing left to give. So we need to be really paying much more close attention to ourselves and also what knowledge other people are giving about ourselves. Um, who's giving us feedback that maybe we seem dysregulated? Like, how are we integrating that into our understanding about our sense of self? And so this sense of self couldn't be more critical. And, and as we layer on around the community and organization, all of this flatters up to the big change and the big new way that we want to be working or otherwise. Mm. I love, I love that. I think we're going to be needing resources like this. And, you know, as you said, the, the speed of change is not slowing down. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't think, I love that you said there's not really a pause. So we, I mean, I think, okay, well, I have to create my own pauses mm-hmm. <laughs> and let go of, you know, recognizing one that I don't, I am not indeed the director of the universe. <laughs> so you take that hat off and, <laughs> you know, chill. Um, but also like just, I think there's a level of acceptance, but you, you use the word, I think, did you say agility? No. Uh, what was the word you used? Resilience, perhaps. Resilience and adaptability, uh, perhaps. Adaptability, yes. I don't perfect. often use the word agility. Yeah. That's, that's like sport. <laughs> it, well, and it's very attached to agile and software development. And gotcha. that's fine, but that's not really what we're talking about. Yeah. I think adaptability was what, what yeah. was really yeah. resonating with me is that, you know, we're resilient and resilience, I think is its own thing. And adaptability is something else. I think need. the two are, two are the same side of one coin. Mm. So unless you have internal resilience, stability, something that's holding you, it's very hard to be adaptable. Because you don't have any stable ground from which to move and change. Mm -hmm. So the place where I see leaders make a mistake is that they try to only be adaptable and throw out all of the safety net. And one, that doesn't work for a human being at all because we will go into um, fight or flight. It's a biological response. We'll freak out. Um, And two, it doesn't work because then your organization doesn't have any footing. And then people are making choices that don't align to anything. So a resilient strategy in an organization is to have a purpose and to get really clear. Yeah. And then you can adapt around that purpose. But if you don't have that stable, that stable ground from which to move, you actually don't have a, a business plan. Mm-hmm. You, you don't have a, a way to, of moving directionally correct towards something. Yeah, without clarity. I mean, it's kind of like jumping in your car. Pre-GPS, um, if anybody even knows what that is anymore, <laughs> without a map. Yeah. I'm and just, just driving. Like, I'll just figure out how to get there. That's great. But where are the gas stations and what about toilets and snacks? <laughs> you know, and, and it's, you know, it's cute, but it's not very purposeful. It's interesting because I find a grounding factor for myself and for my clients. And actually I do this with my children is like what? let's find some clarity. Like, let's just pause, just pump the brakes. And when we slow down, we actually can accelerate later once we figure out what it is. So we can cut down some of the noise and get really clear. I have found in the last several weeks that it's, I have been struggling getting one foot on Mm -hmm. the ground because of the news cycle and all the things going on and, you know, just lots of change, you know, so we, I work 
on my own strategies and I work with my clients on their strategies. And if what we do together doesn't work, the next step is therapy. And I'm all about it. I'm <laughs> like, bring on the therapist, right? Because there's something going on that can really be supportive to us. And so I think it's important for us to just check in with that and, and to have our listeners hear that. Like there's no shame and not really knowing what you want or where you're headed. And sometimes we need to bring in reinforcements in order to figure that out. And then not only is there no forward. Yes. And not only is there no shame in that, that's the first step to making a bold change that actually might embody your life in a, a, a different way. So if you're holding on and you don't bring in the reinforcements or you don't unravel a mindset that's not working for you, you're always just going to get more of the same. Mm-hmm. So the question becomes, are you willing to do the hard work now to get something different later? Yeah. And I see more and more people who are willing to do that right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm seeing a lot more willingness in my clients, potential clients, and my colleagues. Like we're all kind of shifting how we look at things. I think, you know, being in my case, being forced to slow down was one of the best things that could have happened for me in the direction of my business. Early 2020, I had lots of uh, live events on the books and um, they were all starting in March. (laughs) So, you know, surprise here, it didn't happen. And I, after like a day and a half of, you know, lots of swearing, (laughs) walking around outside, staring at trees and wondering what I was going to do with my life, I was like, oh, this is actually an opportunity. And I needed, I knew that I needed to tap into my personal resilience in order to be able to to shift or adapt, right? And yeah, it it actually facilitated a massive redirection of my whole business. And it facilitated the birth of this podcast, which I would not have had time for if yeah. I things had gone the way I, you know, so meticulously planned them to in 2020. Mm. So yeah, I just I what a I great think, example. Yeah. And embracing think, that moment. Yeah. I had a pity party. I had a righteous sure. pity party. It was great. <laughs> My family did not enjoy me, but I think having a pity party is perfectly fine. As long yeah. as you sort of get o- get over it, right? Yeah, it was get finite. <laughs> it's like there is a time limit. I get tired of myself when I get grumpy, so I'm like, all right, I'm done. I'm done being grumpy. Now what? Yeah, yeah. like what's next? Yeah, what's next? But I think it's important for us, like you were saying, it's okay actually not to know. Is that's you know you said something interesting about unraveling a mindset, and I would love to hear more about that. Can you? Yeah, happy to share about that. Yeah. So I'm very interested in mindset and have been for for years because when I was still at Google, I ran a research study that ended up really talking about mindset as the foundation of the beginning of how we think about our our leading. It, it often comes from a, a mindset. So for example, your mindset is either I'm a leader or I'm not a leader. And that will dictate the way that you embrace or don't embrace this notion. So because I have become so interested in mindset, I've been following a lot of the research about it and doing some of my own. And there, we're learning more and more about how much mindset impacts everything from the way our body processes food to the way that we decide to to be in the world. So one of the things I think a lot about about 
building um, effective working conditions, effective leadership is starting at that point of the mindset. Because if we start just at the behavioral manifestation, you might be able to change some of your behaviors, but you're not getting to the core of the, the belief system that is driving those behaviors to begin with. And because we are looking really for sustainable change that doesn't require a heavy lift, if we can just go to the mindset level, which sounds so simple, but it's really tied up in a lot of things, identity being one of them, we get more sustainable change over time. I think we're seeing that more inside organizations too, that whatever the collective mindset is inside the organization will always dictate what happens inside that organization. If an organization believes, and of course a mindset is in an organization is the amalgamation of the systems, the values, the whatever it may be. But if fundamentally the mindset that an organization holds is that we're simply here to make money, well, then you can imagine the type of behaviors and outcomes and systems that are built and then how people behave inside that organization. Because the mindset is so clearly simply about the stock, for example, mm-hmm. versus Patagonia is a good example of a, coming in with a very different mindset about what the role of uh, an organization actually is and how it's meant to contribute to a sustainable world. And the two have created like a, you know, a traditional organization that has been about the bottom line and Patagonia or other B Corps, they've created very different organizations because the mindset has been very different. And I'm not actually talking about values. Values are different. Values are sort of a a mechanism by which we tell people how to behave. Mindset is actually really deeply about what we believe to be true. And because it's that, it's it's a much deeper and powerful lever for change. Mm. Interesting. I hadn't thought about it that way because I was thinking values as you were talking about Patagonia, yeah. thinking about like what their company values are yeah. and how very different they present than say yeah. Microsoft, <laughs> you know, just True. very different. But both would probably say integrity is a value, which simply means we don't behave unethically. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't say anything about the underlying mindset, mindset. what the organization is meant to do in the world. Mm-hmm. That's a really important distinction. I think so. I think we get caught up around values as the linchpin for organization change, for behavior management. And in in times like this, where we're rethinking what work actually is and the meaning, to go back to the beginning of our conversation, the the meaning of what this organization is supposed to be doing in the world, let's go to the mindset level. Because that is really where that meaning making lives. And then values can be stacked on top of that to certainly behaviorally reinforce a set of mindsets. But where we often don't go is actually looking at what mindsets are underlying Mm -hmm. these values um, and these sort of behavioral manifestations. Wow, this is, you've blown my mind today. <laughs> I really appreciate it. I'm like, I cannot wait until your book hits the shelves. <laughs> me either. Let me I bet. This is a labor of, of love and time and yeah. blood, sweat, and tears. I'm all sure. the things. Yeah. I, all I, the things. I have loved it. I'm, I love thinking, it's my favorite thing to do. And so 
having the opportunity to step back and write a book has been one of the greatest blessings of my life because I wouldn't have been able to do it when I was working at a big corporation and work with work life. It was just too busy and I had too many demands as a, as a leader inside the organization. Mm-hmm. And I had to unravel my mindset actually about giving myself that it was, that this was the creative process and that I was allowed to have a day where I was, you know, out in nature. And that was the work mm-hmm. was being out in the nature and allowing my mind to roam free. Now talk about having to shift my mindset around what, what it actually means to be productive. Right. The whole different way of operating in the world. It is. Being a writer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think just to, to kind of piggyback on that, I spend a lot of time helping my clients unravel their mindset yeah. of work. A lot of them come from like hospital settings or large practice settings mm-hmm. and then come in and start their own practice. And yes, there's a lot of heavy lifting in the beginning. Nobody's, nobody's going to pretend like it just, you just wake up and you have a business. It doesn't quite work that way mm-hmm. usually. But this idea that rest is part of our natural cycle, mm-hmm. doing nothing also needs to be part of our natural cycle. And doing nothing, you like you were saying, you can still be productive. You know, when you look at, I saw a meme floating around a while ago, which I thought was really cute, but also relevant, which is if you look at like cartoons and then you look at cloud shapes, you have to make that connection that somebody probably was laying on their back, staring at the sky. <laughs> right. And this created cartoons. Yes. <laughs> so I, I place a lot of value and stock in giving ourselves permission to do nothing in order to. And I think that's how we bring forward, we birth another project or some potentially our greatest work that we bring into this world. So I love that I completely that you gave yourself agree. permission. <laughs> My, well, it was hard. Absolutely. I'm not going to pretend mm. like it wasn't hard to figure out how to, how to accept that. Mm-hmm. Um, the last Instagram post I did was all about play and awe and wonder as the birthplace mm. of making meaning and con- connecting the dots. And to your point, birthing the next big idea, it comes yeah. from that place of, of allowing our, our nervous system and our brain just to have a moment. And then the neuro, the, you know, the synapses will do their work mm-hmm. and they will connect the dots and then you'll have a, oh, what about this? Yeah. Beautiful. Oh, thank you for sharing that. Mm-hmm. Well, before we wrap up, I would love to be able to share with our listeners where they can find you and how we can support you. Yes. So LinkedIn is where I post most of my thinking and my LinkedIn profile is just Ciela Rose. And you can also find me and sign up for my quarterly newsletter on humcollective.co. Okay. We'll share those links in the show notes and they'll be clickable and easy to find. Awesome. Well, Tracy. Oh, it's my pleasure. Any parting wisdom that you'd like to share with our listeners? Mm -hmm. I always... In times like this, I always want to remind people that there's a profound opportunity at play. Even when we might feel overwhelmed or like the state of the world is a big mess. Just remember that this is sort of how systems actually do work and do change. Is that when the big groundswell of change is going to happen, the system will push really hard to make sure it does it. 
So I think what we're seeing around the pulling back of, of things that we've held to be true and important and people grasping for the old way actually is a sign that the new way is coming. Otherwise, people wouldn't be grasping for the old way so hard. And that's a natural way that systems work before the old way dies. So just remember that as we're in a, a state of maybe overwhelm or sadness. And I have to believe that on the other side of that, there will be this new way that we've co-created together. Mm. Oh, thank you for that big breath of hope. I, I feel the same way. So it's really encouraging to hear that there are other humans who feel that same way. Yeah. It's hard to watch. And, you know, if uh, I call it the old brigade, right? The old brigade yeah. is clinging. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it's threatened. So this is, this is a good thing. Change. Change isn't Change always. Change is afoot. Yeah. It's and not, it doesn't, it's always, not feel always, doesn't always feel good. No, that's why they call it growing pains. Right. But we do it anyway. We do it. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I really enjoyed our conversation. And please let us know when your book hits the shelves or maybe even come back on the show. Um, yeah, I would love to have you back on. And just best of luck as you get all of, all of the next steps done. I'm sure that there's a lot more work to do. And um, just thanks again for coming. Thanks, Tracy. Thank you for listening to this episode of Entrepreneur Mindset Reset. Be sure to click the subscribe button so you'll never miss a show. As you know, reviews are what help your fellow entrepreneurs find the right podcasts for them. So please leave us a review and tell your friends about us so more people can hear the valuable information we share in each episode. If you are a medical practice owner and you're struggling with overwhelm from the daily business operations and decisions and trying to manage your time and all that juggling, schedule a talk with me by visiting my website at tracycherpesky.com forward slash medical hyphen practices. Link is in the show notes. We look forward to hearing from you and celebrating your success.